My name is Bill, uh, lead pastor here at Bethel Christian Church, and I'd like to welcome you. It is something that we often take for granted, but the opportunity to come together to worship God and everything we do here is worship in different ways. God has created us viscerally. God has created us embodied. God has created us with emotions and relationships and histories and, and the richness, and these are all the areas where he engages us, where he grows us. And it's a great reminder not to make the mistake of, well, I have this little spiritual box in my life, and I'll, I'll check the box, and, and now I go back to the rest of life, where the rest of life is where God shows up, where he desires to be, where he makes himself at home. And so everything is on the table regarding us, our lives, our situations, and all of it can be brought to bear when we look at God and more of God and and why are we here and what difference does it make and, and all of these questions. And so really, this is a snapshot in the week, week to week to week, of the changes that God is making in us and among us and through through us, and we celebrate that, we, we kind of mark it, but really it's unto the next thing. And so that's what we're doing with our series in the Gospel of John. And if you're just joining us, uh, hey, we're, we're, we're in chapter two, so you're, you're hopping on the train early, um, and it's all, all good stuff. We're going to be um, finding ourselves at the beginning of John chapter two for today, and we may or are we, uh, are we cool video-wise? Oh, we'll, be, we'll be coming along. We're, we're good. Um, if you want to turn to John chapter 2, and we, we might have Goody up, up top as well. well. We'll see if these come up. There we go. Life of the party. What was Jesus' first miracle? Turning water into wine. Life of the party. Uh, you, ever, you ever think why that was the first? Just the first that they remembered, the first that it was just one of them had to be the first, if not this, something else. Or, or was there something more going on with the way the story's told, the way the story's arranged, what John is specifically doing, and he tells us he's doing this, this selective history, this chronologically was not one of the first miracles that Jesus did. But John tells the story that way. Next week, we're going to look at the cleansing of the temple, which actually happened at the end of Jesus' life, literally the last week of Jesus' life. But John, again, puts it at the beginning. Why? There is a very important reason. It's a lens through which we see Jesus and how we read the rest of the story, how we read the rest of our stories. So I want to ask that question, why this situation as the first miracle? The first revelation that there's something more going on here, that there's a transcendent hope beyond just a good guy, a moral teacher. What we're going to look at is a, is a reason, I think I'm using the wrong, there we go, pilot error, is a reasonably simple truth, and it's that Jesus offers more and better than anything upon which we rely. More and better. When I say rely, what do I mean? What gets us by in life? What gives us a name? What gives us an identity? What makes life worth living? How we cope, how we fill in the rest of the spaces in our life. Whatever it is, we rely on that. Now, there's lots of things in our life that make up our life, and God put them all there. There, There's lots of things that are great. But as soon as it becomes a rely, a foundation, we're in trouble. Because nothing in this life was ever intended to take that place. 
I love music, but if I just absolutely need music to, to change my mood and, and to be part of this and my identity and I vicariously live through all of this, it's a problem. I love sports, um, but if, if that's my identity, if I'm filling my life with that, God, God has given us many things upon which to, to fill our lives and celebrate, um, but as soon as they become too big of a part, we're already in big trouble. So Jesus burst upon the scene in the normalcy of life to announce to us, I got you. I see you. I get you. The Lord knows our frame, knows what we're made of. We're but dust, Psalm 103. And so our expectations of ourselves are so much greater than God. God meets us where we are. So again, back to the question, why a wedding to tell us these things? I get you. I got you where we are. Thank you. Redemption. Bless you. Now, um, the whole wedding phenomenon has taken on a life of its own. We've we got shows. We have spin-off shows. We have stereotypes. We have tropes that, that, that are, are, are somewhat humorous because, yeah, we, we can see this. I think I mentioned before um, where we used to live in Reno, there's a bridal sh- um, shop called It Really Is All About You. I'm going to steer into that slide, right? Cha-ching. Um, but we've got say yes to the dress. There's just a million of these things that are out there uh, because it's common currency. Um, weddings aren't just the black and white version that we typically have in America. Uh, cultures have celebrated weddings since creation in many different ways. And it's a way of bringing together culture, artistry, expression, all of these different things. Um, notice in this shotgun wedding, everyone's smiling but dad with a Franchi Spaz automatic there. Yeah, thought that was cute. Um, it, people, people incorporate different things, different elements. Um, uh, no commentary, no commentary. Um, all sorts of different ways of engaging, all sorts of different ways of saying, this is a part of our life, these are parts of our life to celebrate, to build upon, to move forward. Whether you're going old school, new school, going small, going big, It is a snapshot of life in the midst of it where so many elements get to be deliberate, where people get to focus, people get to, again, no comment, it's the happiest place on earth. But the reception is really where a lot of the stress gets into because as, as, as much time as people you know, spend arranging all, of the, arranging all of the wedding details, it's the reception where you need the tactical genius of, of a marshal or a Patton because you can't put Aunt Bernice at the table with Uncle Joe because of that thing that happened last time. And, and, and you have it all worked out. 99% of the people are seated. Oh, no, now we have to change it all. So whether you want, apparently, a pillow fight during your first dance, or a ticker tape parade, um, the more people you add to the reception, the more complex it gets, the more all the rest of this stuff of life just takes on a life of its own. You see, weddings, other than being debtor's prison for dad, are, are a common event because it's incorporating the rest of life in a way that we get to celebrate not in the rest of life. It's a special way of saying these are the elements that, that are important and you can really see in many ways in some of these pictures uh, that, upon, that which is a part of our life and maybe even that upon which we rely. And so Jesus picked one of the most earthy, common human things, lives coming together, families coming together, histories coming together. We have two selfish people that haven't been able to see past themselves, and now we're putting them together. 
with all their selfish family and selfish friends, and we're working a whole new creation together. Sound familiar? Sound what God's doing with us in Christ? And so these, these life events, it's just something we get. We've all had experiences, good, bad, ugly, and different, whatever it is, but it's a, it's a type of humanity where, where we, can, we can, or it's a, a part of humanity where we can jump in. Weddings. Now, we saw some elaborate weddings in these pictures, but they are nothing in economy of scale compared to an ancient Hebrew wedding. Because these people knew how to party. I mean party, hardcore. A typical wedding in the ancient world went on for seven days. Okay, the wedding was day number one. And so people would come in from out of town. You, th- you think it's difficult arranging people flying in and flying out in a few days. People would be there for an entire week just for the reception. And the reception would rage into the wee hours and then it would pick up again in the, in the early morning and it would rage again and it was just people coming together and it was all this going on. High stakes pressure. Because you've got family and extended family. Everyone's kind of connected somehow. So like all of Israel gets invited to every wedding or so it seemed. Um, and everyone's expected how is this reception going to be put on? How is it going to be done? What is this family in comparison to that family? Oh, we were just at the, the Lowenstein's wedding and they had this. And, you know, now Shlomo's getting married. And, you know, and it's just intense pressure. So on this patina, this, this gilding of joy and excitement and mirth and merriment and, and wonderment, there's, the, there's these deep roots of major social pressure and frenetic chaos that's going on. And everybody gets this. Everybody's been part of a family. As a little kid, you're the one, why do I want to go play with my friends? Shut up, you're doing the wedding the whole week. And, and you grow up in this culture, and so everybody experienced this. And we're going to see, I think there was no better place for Jesus to demonstrate divinity and humanity, where heaven and earth come together, where God and man come together, where God is uniting a new humanity in spite of us still not being able to see past ourselves, where we're challenged and where he moves us on. Now, how things would work in the Hebrew world on top of this monster week-long reception would be this. Most people are usually betrothed at an early age. And, and, and as us as postmodern individualists in America, where the greatest value is personal choice, right? We enshrine that, personal choice. I choose, I life, iPod, iTunes, I God, Right? I choose for me. We talked about last week the hangover from the fall, which was eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. I get to decide for myself as God what is right and wrong for you and for me and the rest of the world. All of us are little gods. None of us can fill the shoes. And so that's why we're in the mess that we're in. And so this thing of choice, it seems, wow, that that seems really bizarre. Let me just be devil's advocate here for a second. Um, The uh, culture was so enmeshed, where people knew each other. And you think any parent wanting the best for their kids, they're going to know the personalities. They're going to know the arc of development for their kids. They're going to know the senses of humor, who gets them, who doesn't get them. And so the arranged marriage in this culture actually wasn't a bad idea. Because what the parents are saying, we want these things to to, to work, to, to go well, and so we can see beyond what the kids are able to see. But anyway, even though choice was taken off the table for a lot of people, and you kind of knew who you are going to be engaged to, when the time came, the, the son would ask his own dad, hey, is it time, can I get married? Sure. Then he would go ask the bride's father, is this, or the fiance, is this time, is it good? He gets secure permission from the parents. And then it's a known deal. But nobody knows when the wedding's going to happen. 
You just have to be ready for it. Because what the son would have to do is at his own house, he and dad would decide where they're going to put the extra room onto the house because the bride always comes to live with the groom's family. And they live in the house with the family, and so they have an additional room. And so the groom would then build, or the groom-to-be would would build this room for he and his bride to join his family. And so every week, the father would inspect the the house with with his son. Is it ready? Nope, not ready, not yet. No, this is terrible. You're going to kill my grandkids. This beam isn't secure. And, and this would go on and off. And depending on the relationship and how exacting it is and, and if, if there's a structural engineer for a dad or, or whatever, this could go on for a couple years. This could go on for a couple months. But then there would come a time when dad would say, absolutely, great, we're good to go. It could be the middle of the night. It could be whenever. And as soon as it was, groom is ready to go. I mean, it's go time. It's been a lot of anticipation. So he gets his friends together. Could be the middle of the night. Gets his friends together. Wedding! Wedding! And everybody just, the, the whole village wakes up. It's a wedding! Wedding's on! Ah, wake the kids! And there's torches and there's pitchforks and no Dracula or Frankenstein. And everybody marches to the next village. Doesn't matter how far it is. It's a party. We're bringing food. We're bringing drink. A lot of picnic blankets. It, it's go time. And so there would be this huge mayhem coming. And meanwhile, the, the bride would be waiting. When's it going to be? When's it going to be? There's not a lot of contact, anticipation. And then they'd see the lights and they'd hear the thing. What's going on? Is it an army? It's my beloved. And so the attendants, the, the women who would be ready, um, they would be waiting and ready to go. And this is the background of the parable of the wise virgins with the oil lamps. Okay, the bridegroom's going to come at an hour in which you don't expect. Please be ready for the party. If you're not ready, you're not invited kind of thing. That's the whole cultural background. And so the wedding would then happen. They march over. They have this huge wedding. Um, it's, it's really a super short, simple ceremony. But then it's seven days of ma- major festivities. So that's what's going on. That's where we join the story. We just had, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was God. The Word was with God. In the beginning, He was with God. All of that. And then we step into the the designation of Christ and the calling of the disciples. And now right out of the gate, first thing, change the world, defeat Satan, defeat death, preach the kingdom, go to a wedding. And so in the midst of just an all-too-human activity, Um, Jesus manifests himself. On the third day, a wedding took place at uh, Cana in Galilee. It's a cue if you're transliterating it. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. Okay, a couple points here. The fact that Jesus' mother's mention shows that she had somewhat of a prominent role, and the fact that he and his disciples were invited shows that it's a family event. It's a family wedding. Nathaniel was the, one of the last dudes called. We looked at last week. Kanaz is hometown. So it's probably somebody um, from his family. Uh, Jesus is also invited, but because Mary's there, I mean, every, everyone's connected at so many different levels. A little bit of background. John is like your ultimate director. He just plays fast and loose with the material. It's all out of chronological order because he's making a theological story here. And John doesn't care about time. He doesn't care except for one part, and it's right here. Because he... Nowhere else in his gospel does he lay out the sequence of events, and it's on this day this happened, the next day this happened, and this happened, and then the disciples stayed with him until about four in the afternoon, and then the next day, uh, Simon, Peter, and Andrew, and the next day, and these things go on. And if you, if you add up the dates, uh, when it says the third day after, which is a Hebrew voice saying in two days, 
Jesus was crucified on Friday. On the third day, he'll rise. That's two days later, Sunday. It's just the way they measure time in the ancient world. Then we have, this is the seventh day where this is happening. Six days of events, and then it's time off to go to a wedding. What does that remind you of? Six days of something. Okay, how did Gospel of John begin? In the beginning, right. There's another book that begins that way. Anyone? Genesis. Six days God worked. Seventh day, he rested. So on the very rest of God, the Sabbath rest of God, we have this wedding taking place, and we have Jesus manifesting himself. Where did Jesus love to manifest himself? To show that there was something beyond on the Sabbath, right? He healed on the Sabbath. He loved on the Sabbath. He forgave on the Sabbath. Why? Because people had so relied on religion, a box to hem them in, it was keeping the rules. And he said, man's not created for the Sabbath, but the Sabbath for man. And so he's already at the beginning of this showing there's something so much more upon which we're already relying. Our religion, our good works, our faithfulness, our attendance, our whatever. Jesus is saying it ain't about any of that. It's about the rest of life that we're celebrating and next step. We have some interesting bookends as well. In the Gospel of John, other than just some really oblique references, Mary who somewhat has a prominent role in Jesus' life, wouldn't you say? Like, if there was no Mary, there'd be no Jesus kind of thing, pretty important. Um, Mary is only mentioned twice, here and at the end of the gospel at the crucifixion. Similarly, we only have two weddings that are mentioned. Here, right at the beginning, and John goes on to say, this is the first of seven signs where Jesus showed his divinity, showed himself as God, revealed his, his deeper nature to us. Um, chapters 1 through 11 are called the book of signs, where Jesus reveals his glory. From, from 12 to the following of John is called the book of glory, where, where, where he receives his glory. So he, he's telling people what it is now in ways that they will get, in ways that they will catch. But right at the end, just before the crucifixion, there's this beautiful, where Jesus is teaching, teaching intimately about the kingdom as friends. And he talks about, in my father's house are many rooms. I go to prepare a place for you. What's he referring to? A wedding. He's referring to a wedding. He's not referring to a mansion and our reward and we'll go to heaven and, oh, I'm going to get a big mansion in heaven. That's the American gospel. False. But get rid of it. It's not in the Bible at all. He's referring to intimacy. I so long to be with you. That's the word he used, the strongest word possible. I have so long to celebrate this with you because the next time I celebrate, it's going to be for real. It's going to be in the, in the presence of everybody, one and done, one by one, right? O-N-E by W, okay, whatever. Um, and, and so the, the, we have weddings at both ends of Gospel of John. We have Mary at, the, at both ends. And we have these bookends where it's a whole story arc that John's telling this story. And it's kind of, okay, pay attention here. Um, and it's kind of like a movie recap. Anybody into rom-coms or romantic comedies? Um, I'm, yeah, <laughs> all right. I'll, your secret is safe with me, Joel. No one will know that you are a closet fan. Um. One of the formulas that, that is, works all the time is there's this awkward interaction where the, the two characters hate each other at the beginning, and then something happens, and there's, there's something that's missaid, or excuse me, is the seat taken, or whatever, and then they have this, this, this romance, and they, they love each other, and it's great, and then there's, a, there's a, some sort of, something comes up, and it's not going to work, and then it plays out, and the guy comes back, you had me at hello, or whatever, but it's whatever, 
whatever happened when they were first getting together, one of them brings it up at the end of it to remind them there's a whole arc, there's a whole story, and now we're in a different place and isn't that great. That's pretty much what John is doing here when he brings Mary back into the story or when Jesus uses the same wedding imagery. Remember at the very beginning when I revealed myself, here's the same deal going here. How did weddings work out in the ancient world? No better than today. The options were just less. And so everybody knew and imported into this. Is this as good as it gets? Is this what I hope for? This is the big celebration in life. And what if it goes sideways? What if my um, wishes aren't fulfilled? What if it doesn't go the way that I want it to? What if I marry butthead? What if I'm butthead? What if we're both buttheads? Uh, All of these things. It's the same deal then. And so I would argue that's probably the greatest reason why Jesus chose in something that's so human, so out of our control, so much expectation and so much reality that teaches us otherwise for good and for bad. Um, That's where we, you know, where we grow the most at cost. Um, Jesus reveals himself. So we jump right into the story because everybody gets it. They know what a, what a pressure cooker this is. They know what expectations are there. We, everybody's been to these things their whole lives. They get it. And so jumping right into the scene, we have this. When the wine was gone, <gasps> Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, my hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Okay, Um, again, Mary's the responsible person. She's part of this. Joseph's probably totally out of the picture. In in Matthew, early on, we we see Jesus referred to as the carpenter's son. In Mark, later on, he's just referred to as the carpenter. So we don't know what happened to Joseph. Did he divorce? Nobody ever considers that. He might have. Did he get hit by a bus? No, because they didn't have buses back then. Come on, seriously. Get hit by a chariot? Um, we don't know what happened to Joseph, but the Bible's silent on it, and he's out of the picture. So Mary's now the responsible one, and she's freaking out, and then all of a sudden there's no wine, and somebody didn't plan, and now it's her fault, and everyone's going to look to her, and what are we going to do? And Jesus, help me! And so he turns around, and he says, talk to the hand, basically. Except he says it a little more brutal than that. This is a really, really, really smoothed out transition. Let me break it down a little bit. Um, no, I'm kidding. Let me break it down a little bit. We've got... Um, he says woman, which, which in English sounds a little harsh, but in a lot of cultures, woman is just like a ma'am, lady, hey, you know, whatever. It's, it's a very neutral phrase. Don't be thrown off by the woman. It's the next bit that bites. The next bit is exactly what the demons would say to him in the temple when they're calling him out. What do we have to do with you? Jesus. You, 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 you. And literally, it's like, sarcastically, we would translate it this way. And this, this concerns me because Why? Really, there's not, there's, we've got nothing in common here. Your, your, your issue is your issue. Why are you even involving me? And that's exactly what Jesus says to Mary, the same thing that G- the demons would throw in Jesus' face. This has nothing to do with me, woman. What are you talking about? Do I look like the wine steward? Did you give birth to a Somali? Excuse me, I'm a, I'm a um, I know I pronounced it wrong. It just sounds like the country and it's funny. Um, I'm a carpenter. Why are you, what are you talking about bouquet and... Um, you know, venting and all that with me. I don't know what. But he's not saying that. It's even deeper. 
See, right when Jesus was presented to the temple in his birth, he was presented to the priest who prophesied over him. And he said, and this is salvation of Israel. Lord, let your, I, your servant can go in peace. Now, I've been waiting my whole life to see this. And Simon, the priest, is rejoicing over seeing the salvation of Israel. And he prophesies amazing things, the rising and falling of many and all of this. And he turns to Mary and says, and a, soul to pier- and a sword to pierce your own soul that this is going to cost you more than you can ever know. And so all we hear Mary up to that point is she treasured these things in her heart. She treasured these things in her heart. Now here's the beginning of the sword. Because it comes down to this. There's a Kathy Mateus song on Christmas probably 15 years ago. But it's the one you just delivered will one day deliver you. And this is what's going on with Mary and Jesus. See, Mary needed to see Jesus not as her son, not as an inside track, not as a um, I'm mom. But even though I am mom, I still need to submit as disciple. I still need to submit as sinner. I still need to reach out to salvation. You still need to deliver me. And so Jesus is pushing your back now saying, you're involving me. You want to involve the kingdom in, 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 in co-opted in ways for the immediate need. And you're, you're seeing this wrong. You need to flip it around. And so he pushes her back a bit. And, and, and Mary, Mary's kind of, whoa, what's going on here? <laughs> do you need hormones? Well, yeah. Um, and, and so just says, okay, whatever he says, do it. J- just trust him. And this, this is the beginning of the process that's going on. And so this is where Jesus chooses to reveal himself, but does so very, very subtly. It's a deliberate distancing. And this is relevant for those of us who've been a believer for a long time or for those who've uh, been saved and grown up in church. We tend to think we have an inside track with God because he's familiar, but we don't. If Mary, his mother, who nursed him, changed his poopy diapers, consoled him when he got a scuff playing soccer or whatever, when he got bullied at school, whatever whatever the deal is, if his mother didn't have an inside track, we don't either. So we all have to come as disciples, as sinners, as followers. And so, again, he's setting up the nature of the kingdom, setting up the nature of relationships that we can't play upon inside family relationships. We can't play upon familiarity, and we need to recognize upon which we actually do rely. Moving on. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Okay, so you got these things about yay high, these these monster deal. Can you imagine what 20 or 30 gallons looks like? So about 180 gallons of water sitting there by the door. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so. And the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. So how many people saw the miracle? Saw it. They saw it was water. They knew it was water. They tasted that it was water. And then it was wine, and they saw it was wine. How many people? Just the servants. Just the servants. Who were the first people the gospel was announced to in Luke? The shepherds. The poor, the disenfranchised, where's God's heart? Just saying. So the servants are the ones that saw it, and through their testimony now, the miracle is made known. All people saw was the wine. They didn't know where to come from. They had to take the servants' words that truly a miracle had happened, and that's how God manifests itself. It's not this thunderclap in the cosmos. Boom! Everybody look at Jesus. But it's reaching broken people through broken people, reaching sinners through sinners, reaching those in need through those in need. And so those who saw it up close and personal through their lives 
is able to reach people in the same situation. Because we can't build faith on a miracle. There's always another explanation. I've seen more miracles probably than most people in this room. I struggle with faith. Because it's, it comes down to the relationship and the day-to-day. And that's how Jesus gets on the bus. That's how he engages us in the kingdom. But there's a lot more going on here. A lot more going on here. And uh, we got a picnic, so I need to be going on as well. The six stone jars, uh, six of them being um, really representing the Old Testament, representing man. Six is always the number of man. Seven being the number of completion. Really don't read too many more numbers in the Old Testament. They sell a lot of books, and it's really fun playing with pyramids and stuff, but it's all a bunch of garbage, okay? But numbers do have somewhat of a significance. And anytime there's six, it's pretty much... Um, this is man. Genealogy of Jesus is given in Matthew, three groups of 14 or um, six groups of six. Is that on purpose? Because Jesus is the seventh of the seven. Okay, there's something going on there theologically. Each six person's a type of Christ. Everyone else is just like you and me because it's both and, right? Okay, so there's more to the story than we're told. So the original readers would go, six water jugs, that sounds like the Old Testament. What are the water jugs there? Everybody knew it. Everybody did it their whole life. Purification. To be a good Jew, you have to wash. You gotta wash. It's like the, you think the surgeons scrub down for 15 minutes, you know, with a beta ding. Um, this was nothing for the religious Jew who's just working it to be pure before God, right? Passover meal, first cup, first thing you do in a Passover, what? Who shall ascend to the mount of the holy God, the one with clean hands? Look, God, we washed our hands, we're clean, accept us. And that's the mentality, that's the, the grid into which everybody fit. So you need it for this wedding ceremony, you needed 180 gallons of water ready at all time because people were just fastidiously washing themselves before they could do anything. And so within that representation of works, of earning, of being good enough, of measuring up, of everybody seeing your performance and God grading you not on a curb, within that, that's the very locus where God manifests himself. And so, so notice, notice how it shakes out here. You can't add anything else to it. They were filled to the brim. Nothing can be added. It's run its course. It had a purpose, it had a role. The law was a tutor, was a nanny to lead us to Christ. Now that the full revelation has come, it fills out our understanding, but Christ has replaced fill in the blank. Christ has replaced works, Israel, the priesthood. Christ, not the church, not the New Testament, not us, but Christ alone. So it's filled up to the brim, and it's, uh, there, there's nothing more going on here. Can't add anything else. And it says draw out. Now there's a couple of words, a couple of verbs used in Greek. The one that's used here is only used for drawing water out of a well. Okay, so let me, let me back up here so you can just see what's going down. Now draw some out of the well. Not out of the water, not out of the um, stone jars. Stone jars were filled to the brim and that was symbolic. Why? Because people are now going to see now they're filled up to the brim with a new wine. Okay, so the water was drawn out of the well, and that turned to wine as well. And so we have more than. We have more wine than you could ever imagine. Who brings 180 gallons of the best wine to, to anything? Nobody does that. No one whatsoever. And so he, he, 
he brings this, this stuff up. It's an awful lot. But more than that, it's more than you could ever imagine. Because it's not just the wine that people can see. It's not just, oh, we got 180 gallons, better ration it out and there's no more. But the water in the well had changed to wine. The water, the groundwater had changed to wine. There's always more. There's more than enough. There's an unending supply. You believe in me, it will be streams of ever-living water flowing from you. And so it's all tied together with whatever your expectations are of life. Christ offers something so much more out of frame, not limited, not according to the standards and disappointments of this world, but something that is truly transcendent that we can only understand by tasting, by jumping in, by participating. And so there was more water turned into wine than anybody knew, but the servants did. The message was communicated person by person through there, and it was more than anyone could imagine, and it was better than anything could imagine. He called the, then he called the bride, uh, excuse me, so the steward, um, the wine steward, who could recognize good wine from bad wine, uh, taste it. He knew what was going on. Then the steward called the bridegroom aside and said, everyone brings out the choice wine first. And then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink, but you have saved the best till now. And everybody did this. Gee, uh, wow, that was a great party. We started out with a 28 Latour, and, and you just kept it rolling all night long. Nah, the rest of it was too buck chuck, but nobody noticed, and it was all cool. And so he's saying, the way of man is this. We put our best foot forward, and we fake the rest. And everybody does it, and everybody gets it. That's just standard issue with the wedding. And so the, the, the bridegroom, or the steward, was just amazed. Who rolls this way? Who does that? That they save the very best to last. And this is the kingdom. You see, we always look at our lives past tense. When, when was it great? When was it good? When did it go sideways? My best days were, were. Jesus never looks at that. It's always, not just fashion forward, but fast tense forward, uh, future forward, where it's our best time is always, always in front of us. He saves the best to last. It gets better and better in him while yet it gets worse and worse out here. You've saved the best until now. Jesus tells this story another way when he talks about um, new wine and old wineskins. See, everybody knew that to carry wine anywhere, and most people drank wine. Um, wine was brewed, it was, was fermented, and it was about uh, regular wine, but it was added um, three to ten parts water, and so it was pretty dilute, and people drank it all the time because straight-up water would kill you. And so everybody had a Boda bag of wine. It was a skin bag, an animal skin. And everybody knew this, that once this, the, the bag had been around for a few years, the animal skin got really hard, and that was great for, hey, I got a, you know, a rough and tumble bag, a thermos that you know, I can drive over and nothing's going to happen to it. But everybody knew the difference between old wine and new wine as well. Old wine wasn't going to ferment anymore. And so you pour it in, it keeps its volume, everything's great. You can use an old wine skin, old wine, old wine skins. But if you put new wine in an old wine skin, the new wine's still fermenting, still, still um, outgassing a bit. And so it's going to expand the skin. The skin can't, doesn't have any give to it. It's like a paint pack robbing a bank. I don't know. Bad example. But it's, it's you, um, it just you know, blows up and everybody's had an experience. Oh, yeah, yeah. You must have put on some new wine. Yeah, I forgot, man. Yeah, that happened to my uncle. Here's a funny story. So everybody's got their Boda bag blowing up story. So into this, he, Jesus talks about the kingdom. And no one pours new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the new wine will burst the skins. The wine will run out. The wineskins will be ruined. I guess the wine will be ruined too. No, new wineskin must be poured into new wineskins. 
New wine must be poured into new wineskins. And what he's saying here and why the kingdom and why the wine and why the symbolism and and why the wedding was simply this. This is a cross section of life where we take all the elements of life and we throw it up and we celebrate it. We have a whole week where we can reflect we're doing humanity. And in the midst of this, all of us know upon which we rely. The relationships, the expectations, the hopes for the future, the, the stories we chat up and how we're doing and, and the one-upmanship and you're seeing relatives and all these games that are being played. In that context, Jesus says there's something so much more than this. There's so much, so much, something so much more than just keeping score, just measuring it up, just leveling yourself from other people or just being reminded how stuck you are in your own life and your own limitations, your own hurts and that's as good as it gets and this is being rubbed in your face. Right in that very situation, Situation, he says there is qualitatively, quantitatively something so far beyond, but you have to taste it. You have to, and you have to put it in different containers. The same containers of religion, of performance, of earning, of other people's expectations um, aren't going to fit. And because what's going to happen is the Jesus untamed, the Jesus of the kingdom, the Jesus of the Bible, the Jesus of the Jesus uh, cannot be contained. And any system of religion or performance or expectation that we co-opt him for, it's going to blow the system apart. And we're not going to know what to do with it. So he's saying if you want into the kingdom, you're going to have to let go of the things upon which you rely There's a lot of things in our life, and that's fine, and that fills it out, and that's where God meets us, and it's good. Notice the context of this entire story. But when we start relying on it, it gets really weird. None of it can take the place of a Messiah, and it becomes too familiar. That's what addiction is based upon. This is killing me, but I don't know anything else, and so I have to rely upon this. This is the gravity. the, The enemy came to steal, kill, and destroy. Jesus Christ came to give new life, new hope, new heart, new future, abundant grace. How does this verse end? And no one pours new wine into old wineskins, otherwise the new wine will burst the skins. The wine will run out and its wineskins will be ruined. No, new wine must be poured into new wineskin. There's one more verse to that. Anybody know how it ends? Because this is the real point of it. What I just read is the setup. This isn't the punchline. What's the punchline? You know, it's hilarious. I I was just... doing some studies in Chicago, and, and just a renowned professor asked this very same question of all these theology students. Nobody could answer it either because we forget. We think this is what it's about. Next line is this. And no one after drinking old wine wants the new, for they say the old is better. Yeah, I like the movie, but the book was better because I read it first because I filled it out. See, there's a familiarity. The old isn't better. That was the very point. This wine here, the wine steward, the expert said, this stuff is so much better than that other stuff, which was the best this guy could come up with. So the old is not better, but it seems to us because we have drank, we've drank the old wine, the old wine of religion, the old wine of conformity, the old wine of measuring up, the old wine, the old wine of these are all my imperfections and hurts and frustrations and brokenness, and I can't get past this, and this is how it equilibrates in my life, and it's better because at least there's a semblance of control or safety or security or it's the devil I know. The old wine is better. That is human nature, but it's killing us. No one after drinking the old wine wants the new. And so here is the real kicker for the the revelation of Christ in this miracle. None of us really wants him as he is. 
We want him to prop up our lives where, where it's sagging. We want to use him as a, the Bible as a manual of how to fill in the blank better, how to do humanity better, how to do my goals better, how to co-opt for my agenda. But nobody wants the new wine, and that's in our nature. That's what we're warring against. So my justifications, my excuses, my laziness, my punching out, my hurt, my issues, all of this becomes justification for why what I'm doing is right and the way it should be, and I'm going to continue. And God, man, this is how you set it up. You better show up here. What's it going to take for me to want the new wine on a consistent basis? I've got to see how much my old wineskins are hard and cracked and constraining my soul. This is where Israel, Israel was. This is where each person in the wedding was. This is where the stewards, the, 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 um, the servants, everyone there. And this is where Jesus manifests himself. Good news becomes bad news for the believer that is used to tasting old wine. Because God's going to start asking stuff that upsets and disrupts and changes. That starts to expand the old wineskin. We start to crack. And we start to resist and we start holding it down. These were all good Jews at the wedding. These were all God followers at the wedding. But they were stuck in old religion. And it remains to this day. At least with me. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. Did they believe completely? No. It was a work in progress, but they believed enough, enough to take the next step, enough to take the next sip, enough to empty out their old Boda bags, enough to say, God, this is scary. This is unfamiliar. This is different. This is unexpected. I invested so much of my life in control, image management, and compartmentalization so I could be safe, so I wouldn't have to change, so I wouldn't have to deal with the hurt that I've tried so hard to push down in many ways. And now you're asking me to just dump all of this stuff out and to be empty, and I'm going to trust you to fill me? That's a terrifying proposition for any of us. But this is the quality of the gospel. This is what simply Jesus Christ asks of each and every one of us. That we would be empty of the old, that nothing would displace the new that he is bringing. In our hearts, in our lives, in our relationship. But he meets us in real life just like he manifests himself in real life. He meets us in our humanity with real anchor points so there can be real change because it's a real relationship. The projections that we have of ourselves that we manage through religion, that we manage through the old wine, that person doesn't exist. The person smells good, says all the right answers. Everybody loves this person. This is our fine mask. That person doesn't exist. Jesus did not die for that person. Jesus did not fall in love with that person before eternity. But the jacked up you that is you, that is more jacked up than you even realize, Jesus loves you. Jesus fell in love with you before eternity. Jesus literally crossed heaven and hell to save you, to fill your heart, to fill your life, that it would be different, that it would be not of this world while yet still in it. And that is the grace and that is the good news of the gospel. Signs are just that. They point somewhere. We can, this isn't a simple story of here's evidence that Jesus is God and he did the first party trick that proves beyond a shadow of a doubt if you read it, Jesus is divine. That has nothing to do with this story. It has to do with this is where we live our lives. This is where we are rooted and anchored down. And this is where Jesus comes in to disrupt in the most heavenly 
and the most frustrating and the most painful and the most necessary, the most liberating, freeing, and holistic way possible. And we're going to see this throughout John. What th- Through the rest of the book now, Jesus is going to be talking about the new wine of the kingdom. Going to be talking about a qualitatively different way to do God, to do relationships, to do ourselves, to do just how we, how we deal with everything. But the people are so rooted, so grounded, so confined to the old religion, so constrained by the size of their old hardened um, old wineskins that they can only hear it in those terms. And they try this and they come to the end of themselves. And so this is the challenge for all of us, that we can read this as old school religion in church and, and, and go through the motions, and we're going to be no better than where we were when we began this series. But, but one of the challenges for me is how do I see God as he is, not as I want him or need him or suppose him to be, and let God be God in my life. And that is a beautiful, frightening freedom where God can do his best work. Again, he can only fill empty vessels. Anything that's in that vessel is going to displace what God wants to put in. And that is where God meets us. That is where he does his best work. Let's pray. Lord God, I thank you. I thank you for your love, for your mercy and grace. I thank you that you have said straight out, screaming against my feelings, screaming against my emotions and my memory and my condemning tapes and what I glean from others and all of this, this crazy echo chamber, screaming against that is his promise. If anyone is in Christ, behold, they are a new creation. The new has come, the old has gone away. That's how you see us, that's how you relate to us, that's how you treat us. How much can I open up and live in that reality as opposed to the one that is more familiar, more, I'm more in control, but I'm still constrained. Open our hearts, open our minds that through one another, through broken people reaching broken people, we can share the news that the water has changed into the wine, that the confines of religion have become the freedom of relationship, not just to attend, not just to wash and be clean, but to celebrate life anew in you. Only you can do this. In Christ's name.